Hello and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine, your host, and today I'm joined by Seb Stafford Bloor. Hi, Joe. And Alex Stewart. Hello. Uh, we're slightly unhappy because it's the third time we've started today. It's taken us a very long time to get going uh, due to various technical mishaps. Also, quick note there are builders around and about. I've said this twice already, so I'll keep it short. If you hear some noise, sorry about that. Nothing I can do. Have you ever seen a more forced smile on anybody? <laughs> Just suck it up. Yeah. It's, good. it's good to do three times because I think the first time I said that, it took me about a minute and a half to say all of that. And that's about 10 seconds. Anyway, today we are talking about Everton Football Club, which is very exciting. We did a podcast on Watford the other day and we promised to do this uh, purely because of the Marco Silva connection and because there's a lot of very exciting things going on at Everton or very interesting perhaps exciting is the wrong word and I've started incorrectly again but uh, very interesting things to discuss um, another point to make is that we are recording this on Tuesday morning the 26th of February 2019 if you're listening in the future um, and tonight Everton play Cardiff a game which you are attending Seb I am yes we don't know what you know the, the we can have a good guess at it but look there no no um, block capital res- responses uh we should depend on that game, basically. Take take umbrage with whatever we say, as long as it's not that. Yeah. I think it's the ground rule. Uh, well, I mean, also, we think that it's it's probably unlikely that Marco Silva's going to lose his job today. So well, we, 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 were talk, we were talking about that during one of the many interludes this morning. And, um, <laughs> and, and we, we, we think that um, there's there's little point in him actually being dismissed, whatever the outcome. I mean, the, um, the various reports that came out at sort of midnight last night talking about sort of Everton deeming this a, a must-win game, must-win in what sense, in the kind of fatal P45 sense, I don't know. It doesn't seem to make much sense. But we, yeah, everything needs the context of, of people knowing that we uh, we recorded this before that game, yeah, just okay. in case. And for that reason, we're going to start by talking about things at Everton in a slightly more broad sense. And we're going to discuss Farhad, Farhad Mashiri. We're going to talk about Steve Walsh as well, who's, I think, been gone for nearly a year yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to talk about the stadium. And uh, then we'll get around to talking about Marco Silva, some of the tactics. Alex, we spoke about it before the podcast. And I know you've got a couple of interesting things to say. I would hope so. Yeah, well, me too. I mean, I find them interesting, but... <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Uh, okay. <laughs> that was so dismissive. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's start in uh, 2017, right? Uh, Farhad Moshiri, who is currently the majority owner of uh, Everton Football Club, increased his uh, stake, which I believe he bought into in 2016. 2016, like, and yeah. uh, he... Uh, yes, he, he increased his stake to 67%. Yeah, and just I believe over, I he's increasing again uh, in uh, the summer. Apparently or, so. All signs point towards that um handily for us and the structure of the podcast he also said at the time uh, that Everton had three particular uh, big important priorities the first of which was to be able to compete in the transfer market and at the time we saw signings like Jordan Pickford Michael Keane Davy Clarson um the second was to uh, have a star name on the touchline again at the time that was Ronald Koeman that's no longer the case it is now Marco Silva and I'm sure we could debate that until the end of the day and uh, the third was to move into a new stadium which we can talk about a little bit later as well because I know there's some interesting things to yes, say there. Yes, absolutely. So on the first point then, um, Everton competing in the transfer market, we saw them spend, you know, close to £200 million in, I think it was the summer of 2017. Um, as far as I understand, uh, the ownership are now looking to reduce the wage bill ever so slightly. Um, 
is that, I mean, perhaps in, in, in partnership with Steve Walsh leaving the club as well. Can you sort of get us up to up to speed on that, Seb? Because it, it seems confusing. Okay, so Walsh comes in uh, off the back of uh, his performance at Leicester, um, which is obviously associated, uh, we'll presumably cover this a little bit more in more detail later, but um, one of the successes of his time there was obviously, you know, the, the Premier League title win, but also discovery of N'Golo Kante, Riyad Mahrez and Jamie Vardy. He's, he's kind of, he's part of that sort of uh, rise of the gurus movement, which kind of, you, you probably put Paul Mitchell in there as well, the former Southampton and, and Tottenham uh, director of football. He's now at Leipzig, I think. Is that right? Yes, I yeah. think so. Yeah. So it's the kind of the belief that these guys have a sort of um, intangible voodoo uh, a, a sixth sense in the transfer market. A third eye. Yeah, and so the the idea. I mean, you, you, the idea is is simple enough. It was kind of marry uh, Mashiri's money with Walsh's um, perception and and his. It's quite an honest know, idea as well. Yeah, right? it made sense. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I, I I remember I remember writing about this for Four Forty. You can still dig that article out somewhere. Where I thought this this makes sense because it's all very logical. Ultimately, what happened? I I still haven't actually heard a. a a good explanation for it. I mean, the... I heard a good um, one. Go ahead. My good... Ex- well, it's not my explanation. I read... I, I, forgive me, I can't remember where I was reading this. I would cite it otherwise. Um, but an article I was reading yesterday in preparation for the podcast suggested that some of the things that Steve Walsh did very well at Leicester... F- first point to make is that he was the head scout there, not the director of football, right? When he moved to Everton, he became the director of football, which meant that he was no longer able to go and scout players personally. So his job became an office job, essentially. He was based in Leicester and he had a team of scouts go and do his scouting for him. So straight away, there's already a disconnect between what his job was before. Rather than an actual scout. Exactly. And we know from loads of other industries that that doesn't always work best. The second thing to say is that at Leicester, there was an emphasis on sort of uncovering, you know, hidden gems and all of the players that are frequently um, related to Steve Walsh, Ria Barres, uh, N'Golo Kante, Jamie Vardy, these sorts of players um, were all of that form. At Everton, when he was moved in, he was jumped up a, uh, jumped up a, a promotion to a, yeah, as an executive job and asked to uh, buy players who could, in terms of investment, get a quick turnaround. And that's an incredibly different thing to what he was doing at Leicester. I think, I mean, it's very logical. I just, I, what I remember that, that summer and I remember what, thinking, firstly, um, Everton were overpaying for the players that they brought in, with the exception of Pickford, who I think everyone thought 30 million, that's that's the premium for a goalkeeper of his standard, fair enough. Retrospectively, it looks like a great deal. Yeah, it does. And also, look, I mean, Michael Keane hasn't um, perhaps justified the outlay, but I think it, most people would honestly say, yes, that's a good deal at the time. Um, and, and, and other clubs would have paid it. Other clubs would definitely have paid it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the only thing I'd say is that sort of in terms of a an overall construction project, I think the the um, our guess at kind of the team that was being assembled on the field always looked odd. It was a lot of playmakers, a lot of a, a very similar type of player at the top of the field, a real lack of pace. Um, and so, yeah, I can understand the disconnect. I can understand you, you, you've got to give someone some leeway if they're moving into a different kind of job. I understand that there were different conditions at Everton uh, and Leicester and that Walsh was operating with a far greater budget than he ever had done before. However, a lot of his work seemed to defy some fairly established football truisms about what a team needs. Um, I also read that it was his suggestion to bring Sam Allardyce in. 
which I think it, it was it was described as what you know, and this is this is all you know uh, rumor, mm-hmm. um, just to be clear. But uh, it was described as as you know the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the owners. Uh, idea of, of who Steve Walsh was the fact that he suggested bringing Sam Allardyce into the club was something that they, they felt just didn't chime with what they'd asked him to do yeah I mean I, I, I mean, that's all conjecture I'm willing to in isolation I'm willing to forgive that because Allardyce the best description I've heard of that appointment was from Sarah Winterburn at 365 who said it, it's the equivalent of sending out the fire brigade to rescue a cat from a tree because Everton had a bad start to the season and they were a mess when Koeman left and David Unsworth was there I mean I, I remember seeing them I went, went to one of their games at Southampton where they got absolutely battered by what was very limited and still is a very limited football team um, and Allardyce came in and all, all that was required was some sta- a stabilising month and it was a sort of it was an overreaction Walsh's reasons for that are unclear whether it was because of a relationship with Allardyce potentially whether it was really because um, at the time if you were working at Everton the spectre of relegation whilst unrealistic to the outside world would have been a, an absolute catastrophe um, so I, I don't know I know I don't know whether this was something to judge him on or not I mean it's something that no one's likely to forgive him for because the football they produced under Allardyce was just it was uh, I, I don't have the vocabulary for it it was it was just brutal it had Wayne Rooney in it well this is the thing so we talk about Steve Walsh as, as someone that's kind of into um, you know to 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 buy players that can be flipped for a better um, for a better description, um, but one of the one of the legacies of Walsh's time there is not just this huge waste of money, but the the enormous wage spend. So Rooney's gone, um, but even then, Wayne Rooney at that stage of his career in this league. I don't think anyone thought, I mean, it was, it was, it was emotionally symmetrical. It was a nice moment. It was a kind of, yes, he gets to come home. That's great. But initially they framed the player around him. Yeah, they did. But then that's kind of, is he the player to frame your, your, your side around when you have those kind of aspirations? Probably not. Um, but also some of the, I, when, when I was, when I was coming up on the train, I was looking at sort of the, some of the wage wages uh, offered to players that came in. I think um, a couple of players on, plus £100,000 a week, which the, the ones you expect, Schneidlin, Sigurdsson, but also Sandra Ramirez. I think Clarsen was on north of 100000 uh, Theo Walcott. I, I, and these are all these are all figures that they're, they're not fact. They're just things I've read. So feel free to contradict me, correct me. Um, Walcott was on a, is on £110,000 a week. Big outlay, not quite that much on Cenk Tossen. I think it's around seventy thousand pounds. So Everton, I, one of one of their stated aims was to compete financially. Um, and it, it's fine to literally do that, but you've got to do it within whilst also recognizing your place in the in in the food chain. So if you spend big money on players, then really it's got to be on someone that, um, for the sake of the the the, the team's financial future, the club's financial future, um, can be sold for a profit later down the line now clearly that wasn't going to happen with Wayne Rooney it's definitely not going to happen with Schneidlin um, with Wayne Rooney though I, I seem to remember that Manchester United paid an awful lot of his wages it's true but I, then, I, I would say that financially probably wasn't much of a I don't, no, well, I don't know, that, I don't that, know but. No, that, that's definitely fair but the way I look at it is is, is dead weight loss because you're you're bringing in a player who um, has been a fabulous player throughout his career, but who was definitely towards the end. I mean, he was on the downside oh, of his sure. career and he yeah, had yeah. been for a few years. Um, and you're bringing in a player like that who is a, a very strong personality and you're building your team around him initially, which is a strange thing to do because 
a new owner comes in, a new director of football, a new manager, you think, right, well, this is the beginning of a growth cycle. A fresh start. Yeah. Now, at that point in his career, Wayne Rooney's shelf life at that level in the Premier League was probably a season at very best. And so it's a kind of... Yes, we, we, you know, you, you, you can, it's easy to retrospectively judge Steve Walsh's his deals and say, well, you know, you've done a poor job. But then there are a lot of things which happened at the time, which were very questionable, which l- look strange then, now, and are, are, are indefensible now, really, actually. Yeah. Um, so it's a really strange one. You've got the, this club that are, are financially able to, to pay big wages for players, but have had this sort of long-term failure to identify players properly and to, to, to look beyond, um, the construction of a team for a single season. I mean, teams like Everton, um, you know, what, what made them successful in the past is long-term planning. Now, I know David Moyes was not everyone's cup of tea. Um, I think events since leaving Everton have shown his limitations. However, one of the things he did very well was the sort of the forward planning of, of transfers. So there's a really good bit in uh, Michael Calvin's Living on the Volcano, actually, where um, uh, David Moyes isn't there, but Mike gets access to to one of their, their transfer strategy rooms. And they've got the kind of, you know, the, the sort of uh, players who they've been looking at over seasons and they've got a kind Kind of um, right. We're going to be targeting this guy in you know 2012, and this guy in 2013. It's very interesting. Mm. So they they did everything. They mapped everything out to kind of try and um, try and get as much value, but also to, to attract players at the right moment. And whilst Moyes had some questionable transfers, he did some fantastic business there. Players like Leighton Baines, of course, but Jagielka was very successful. Um, uh, Billy, Billy, ah, still can't pronounce his name. Billy Edinov. There you go. Exactly. Marin Fellaini. You know, these players. Tim Cahill. Uh, Tim Cahill, Mikel Arteta. We were just naming the Everton team, but yeah, I mean, they know, were all but, very but, good. But within reason, like, yeah. sort of none of these players, none of these players were more than they were at Everton before Stephen they arrived at the Pina. club. Stephen Pienaar. You know what? I love well, Pina, Stephen Pienaar. Well, Pienaar was a, a name, maybe not a, a sort of a, a category A name, but sort of anyone that came through at Ajax, you, you think, well, you, you're not a you're not a surprise commodity, are you? you? You're kind of, you're a known talent. But Pienaar, Pienaar developed fantastically well. Um, he got a tune out of Landon Donovan very briefly. You know, he did good things and, and a lot of that, despite his limitations. I forgot about that. Yeah, you know, there, there's he was there for so long that it's easy to, and also our perception of him is coloured by what happened next but mm. Everton's Everton's ability to compete right at the top of the table just outside that top four range um, was based on this long term strategy which I feel under Steve Walsh vanished mm. okay I mean I, it, it's 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 odd I mean it's it's kind of on, are you pinning that on Steve well I'm not pinning is the wrong word no no I'm not because I, I think whenever a new owner comes in with a lot of money and a lot of ambition sometimes things get accelerated and sometimes people get strategists that get taken out of their comfort because, zone because there are multiple sort of avenues that we could yeah, well <clears throat> I don't want to use a violent language but lay the blame at the door yeah, of yeah. you know obviously the, the thing that is most commonly discussed in these scenarios is a change of manager but we know uh, that football clubs don't aren't run like that anymore right so I mean in terms of that you have change of director of football a new director of football change of ownership a couple of changes of managers where does it leave Everton now though I mean we you know we said in 2017 they spent an awful lot of money transfer activity of late hasn't been quite the same as we said at the beginning of the podcast um, Fahad Moshiri and the ownership team are looking to reduce the wage bill understandably as well because they spent a lot of money they're not making it I mean another way and I wish I could again I really should have written down uh, where I was reading this stuff but I read another interesting argument about Everton um, which suggested that when Manchester City were bought out by Sheikh Mansour, um, 
the only three teams that were competing consistently for top four places really were Chelsea, Manchester United and Arsenal. So the fourth spot was a slightly easier grab. Yeah. By the time that Farhad Boshiri comes along, 2016, 2017, you've got the, you know, the kind of revival of Liverpool, the massive improvement of Tottenham and you've got the four big teams to still uh, compete against. So the so, sorry, suddenly there's six teams to fight with to get anywhere near the Champions League positions. It's obvious that what accelerated Manchester City's growth was the ability to kind of sneak into that fourth position before this occurred. So any even forgetting about financial fair play laws, bringing along uh, an owner who's got lots of money and a willingness to spend just isn't enough to break into that cabal at the top, is it? So what are Everton really expecting? You know, and, and in terms of. Well, let's let's take all of these 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 bigger things off the table. Let's um, let's forget about Champions League qualification and top four and and um, you know uh, competing for silverware and and look at kind of improvement of the team and stable improvement, sort of year on year development of the side. So um, in May twenty eighteen, uh, Steve Walsh was let go. Marcel Janssen was. Um, was recruited from PSV. He'd been, um, been PSV's director of football between 2010 and 2018. Uh, previously been at AZ Alkmaar, I think. Um, and he's someone who has a reputation. Um, his, his transfer reputation, his transfer record isn't spectacular. He's got a few, um, a few names in his pocket. I mean, he, um, he bought, uh, Kevin Strootman from Utrecht. Strootman. Yeah. Which I, I, his career is kind of sab- sabotaged by injury, but he could have, at one point, he could have legitimately been called an elite midfielder in Europe. Uh, I remember he was on Man United's way up for Yeah. A while. He was a very, very good player. Um, he, uh, he signed Jorginho Wijnaldum, obviously. Um, and that, that, that worked out very well. He also, he brought, um, uh, Mr. Ndali, the, the Tottenham midfielder rather than the Leon forward, um, uh, to Utrecht. Um, so he can lay claim to, you know, uh, to AZ even. Um, so he can lay, lay claim to his career in a sense. Um, when he came in, I think the, the wage bill accounted for, uh, 80% of the club's turnover. It's 145 million or something, isn't it? a huge amount for a club not paying Champions League football. Yeah. And I think um, just to put that into some context, uh, what is suggested by uh, financial advisors for a healthy wages to turnover ratio for a football club is around 50%. Right. Now that's not to say that Premier League clubs or many of them are at 50%, no, 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 no. but that is, that's the suggested aim. barometer for it. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So yeah, you, you've got this kind of, there was, he did an interview when he, when he um, was first appointed and he talked about, um, he talked about two things. He talked about um, the size of the squad. So he said, you know, forgetting wages and spend and, you know, how much money has been uh, used to, to, to buy players. He said, look, you you know, I, I think they, they had a, a first team squad of about 36 players. And he said, this is just, this is not manageable. And he was right because you can't have a 36 man squad and, and uh, you know, uh, avoid wastage. Um, obviously, the um, in the implied direction was to, to trim the wage bill. But then, I mean, you look at Everton's transfer activity over the summer and you see, um, you, you, you see a lot of the same issues. Um, they've Bought better. Luca Dean is a is a good fullback, and they needed they desperately needed an improvement there because Leighton Baines is getting older. Um, uh, Kurt Zuma was loaned from Chelsea to to try and cure this kind of long term defensive problem, but yeah, a seven million pound loan cost. There's no um, guarantee that he'll remain an Everton player beyond the end of the season, especially now that Chelsea have got a transfer ban. Um, Yeri Mina came in from Barcelona. 
Um, and that's really interesting because Barcelona World Cup hero Yuri Mina. Well, this is it. Within a year, um, I think I think Barcelona signed him for eleven million euros. Within a year, and after just five La Liga appearances, um, he had doubled in value. We had an incredible World Cup, didn't he? Did he go to Everton before the well, World Cup or I, afterwards? He didn't have an incredible World Cup. He scored goals it's in the like, World Cup. It's, it's complete availability heuristic. He scored a couple of big goals. Yeah. Listen, what the point I'm making is that <laughs> to the layman, i.e. myself, <laughs> when I remember uh, Yuri yeah. Mina, I remember, what a great World Cup. Mm-hmm. So, but that, but that, is, that is a default reason not to sign someone. But this, this is, is your, also a reason... This is your football manager series. I remember this. Yeah. You're talking about the fallacy of, of, of tournament form. Talk us through it, Alex. So, so so the the issue with international football is that it massively captures the attention and it's one of those things where you know any any club would feel remiss if they didn't send scouts to the world cup or or euros that kind of thing and a, a player can do extremely well and and as you say massively increase their value the issues with that though are manifold so they're playing in a team for a manager, potentially within a system that is not what they're used to. Um, there's a, a certain set of kind of emotional uh, impacts that that can improve a player's potential or their, their ability to deliver in a short space of time. Any statistician will tell you that a small sample size is basically useless. So you've got a whole host of reasons why somebody who does fantastically well in four or five games buying them particularly at an inflated price, which is what will happen after they've done fantastically well on the world stage, is just about the worst idea. And any sensible transfer person, any sensible director of football will know that. Now, of course, there are other reasons why you might buy a marquee player like that. And I think it's something that is and there worth- are outliers, right? There are outliers. Thomas Rodriguez. Right. Um, and, and there are people who, you know, someone like Thomas Muller, who consistently, or well, up until this World Cup, had done fantastically at international tournaments, has also shown consistently that he can do that for Bayern Munich. So buying him wouldn't have been odd, but that's because there's a whole other data set to show that he can do it in the Champions League, he can do it in the Bundesliga. So, Or in European football as a whole, just in, you know, which, right. which Jeremy Mina obviously doesn't have. No, and, and Jeremy Mina is, is a a particularly odd example in the sense that he is a central defender who caught the eye for late goals from set pieces. So he's not even really doing the thing well that you're actually looking to buy him for. And, and you know, Davison Sanchez was a much better defender for Colombia at the World Cup than Yerry Mina was. I think, I think I understand the logic because you've got... Everton broke their transfer record the year before to to, to sign Gilfi Sigerson. So what you do have in that team, theoretically, is excellent set piece delivery. So you think you've seen Yerry Mina at the World Cup and you think, right, that's interesting. Incidentally though, are we are we really saying that we think that uh, Everton bought Yerry Mina because of the World Cup in the same summer that the World Cup took place? It's unlikely, right? No, I mean, no, they, I, 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 they I, must have been tracking him before that. No, we 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 wouldn't we would never say that um I mean Janssen Janssen's whole operating procedure is investment in scouting. So he reduces the number of scouts in a club puts more money into individual scouting. Just sent them um, to watch Barcelona games. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's it's weird that a club would sign. It's yeah. weird that any club would sign three fringe players all from the same 
other team. I mean, I, I understand I understand Gomez. Gomez is alone and Gomez is a good player. Before Gomez got to Barcelona and um, had his confidence obliterated by a whole series of factors, he was one of the, the, the most admired players in, the, in La Liga, uh, most, most admired younger players. Um, so who's, that's, the, who's the third player? Luca Dean. Yeah. Who, um, who actually has been... He's been Probably, good. Probably, well, him and Richarlison have been the two successes of this window. So it, Gomez it, to an extent. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I, but there, there are still Richarlison. I like. I think Richarlison is the kind of player who is young enough to potentially see his value increase and and. If they should, if they should so wish, then Everton could probably make a profit on him in the future. Performance is dependent, but you know there are a few others in there like Bernardo. I didn't, I didn't understand that transfer. I mean, they they got a player in the squad, Adamola Lookman, who I really like, who's who is raw and who perhaps isn't someone that should be guaranteed first team football, but I, who who is worth the opportunity. And this being a new start for the club with new director of football, new manager, you think okay, you you can. Supporters will forgive things like that. If they see a sort of a botched transfer policy of the past and they see a, a new manager coming in and saying, right, well, you, Adam Lookman, you are going to play from one of those wide forward positions and we're going to see just how good you are. Um, he's coveted by Bundesliga clubs for a reason. He's a very, very talented footballer. Um, but I just, I, 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 see, I see symptoms of the past. Um, the one thing to add in here is that sort of um, the great obstruction to Janssen's work for the next two years will be Everton have a transfer ban on on their academy. So they went to an incident in 2016 um, with the sort of attempted capture of a Cardiff City player. Um, they are banned from signing players between the ages of 10 and 18 from 2018 to 2020. And for a player who um, has extracted so much value in his career from an academy, I think when PSV last won the title on Janssen, half their side was was homegrown. Is his name Janssen? Marcel Janssen, yeah. Oh, I thought it was Marcel Brands. Fuck. That's okay. No, we're, we're we need to go again. <laughs> no, we're okay. We're okay. <laughs> Don't. I've got him confused with the old 20 midfielder. You have. Yeah, but you've been talking about the right person. No, but that's that's. Oh, I can't have that. Why not? It's fine. It doesn't matter. I've been calling him Marcel Janssen for 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 ten minutes. Just twice. Just twice. You called him that. Honestly, (sighs) it's all good. Seb's very upset because he said the wrong name. That really bothers me. But just to be clear, you were talking about the correct person, weren't you? You weren't talking about the FC Twenty midfielder. I'm not talking about the FC Twenty midfielder. No, I am talking about the right guy. It's absolutely fine. Honestly, this podcast has been through so many stillbirths. We just need to, we've got a pulse. Uh, Let's keep going. What do we do then from here? Oh, we're still recording now. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we're just letting the audience know that uh, you're a little bit upset that you said the wrong name. Oh, I'm mortified. That's going to ruin my day. But it's really fine. Really. Anyway, listen. The, anyway, the, the, the anyway, key to remember anyway. here, Seb, is that everyone knew who you were talking about, and I, I was just waiting a little bit before I checked that you were saying the right name. For the, for the knife in yeah, my back. Yeah. I waited till the third time right. you said the wrong name. Not the- <laughs> to clarify. Tell us who you were talking about again. Uh, Marcel Brands. This reminds go. me of my Denver bar um, mental tick, but I, I couldn't get it into my head that he was Senegalese. Like I kept calling him my Vorian in every article I wrote about him, and no matter how many times I was corrected, it was still there. There you go. And also, I get the, um, I get Dan Ashworth and Dan Ashcroft confused. So the character from Nathan Barley and the former technical director of the FA. I've done that myself. It's very easy. Mm. Dan in, in a way, they're both kind of the preacher man, aren't they? So. Yeah, they kind of are. But I, I don't think that washes with 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 an internet which is not that forgiving. Anyway, that's our detour done. Yeah. Anyway, so Marcel Brands, not Marcel Janssen. Um, his thing is is. 
is Academy. So, do you know who he is? <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I did. I thought I did. And now, now seemingly not. <sighs> you go on. So, last time PSV won the title, uh, I think five of the eleven sort of nominal starters were actually homegrown. Everton have a transfer ban on their academy for two years. So between, because of the uh, events of 2016, when they tried to uh, procure a player from Cardiff City, um, they um, are not allowed to sign players between the ages of 10 and 18 from 2018 until 2020. I'm not sure of the months on that. Right. but So that's like, you, this is a guy that's been brought in to serve a purpose and a lot of it's infrastructural and a lot of it's on a time lag. So therefore, Brands is, not Janssen, Brands, I'm committing it to mind now. Okay, now. Um, uh, he is, you have to reserve judgment there because if he's he's inherited this situation, it is not of his doing. So um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a bit of a bit of a time. I you know what? I can't even remember what the question was now. We've gone around so much. I'm just leaving you to, <laughs> to <laughs> your own stew. I just pick up the um, Adlamola Luckman yeah. thing. Yeah. There's definitely um, a qu- incidentally, uh, I should probably we're gonna answer some listener questions as well. I can't remember the name of the person, I will mention it later, but someone did ask about Adamola Luckman and uh okay, so you we'll know, should back. he be playing. So I'll, I'll mention that person's name at the time, but do just to reference uh, sorry, just to let you know someone's asked about him too. Yeah, the, the the point I was gonna make in this sort of ties in a little bit with what we were saying about David Moyes and the ability to um to to procure players with some kind of longer term plan in mind and also an up value yeah. in terms of flipping them as you put it. Like a house. That, that yeah. brings anyway. Yeah. Um, if you look at some of Everton's biggest transfer sales in the kind of pre-Morshi era, uh, most of them have been at least young players. I know they paid a lot for Lukaku when they bought him from Chelsea, but he was still young. He was still pretty raw at that and point. And they were always going to make a huge profit. Absolutely. Yeah. And people like John Stones as well. And you look at some of the acquisitions that they've made in the last couple of years, their best ones have all been for players that are not very expensive. So Adressa Gay cost 8 million. Dominic Calvert-Lewin cost... 1.3 from Sheffield United. Like something like that, yeah. Um, the uh, defender who has played a little bit. I can't remember his name currently. Um, At least you didn't say the wrong name. Sure. <laughs> uh, and and Luckman as well. Well, Mason uh, Holgate. Mason Holgate. That's but Mason Holgate's now on loan at West Brom, I think, um, uh, which is yeah. weird. But it, uh, yeah, he was. It, and and that, that to me seems like, I mean, those are all acquisitions that I would think were really sensible and have a, a view in mind of saying, you know, we will with Luckman, for example, he has the potential to be a fantastic player. So let's get two or three good years out of him. Let's bring him on, give him a first team role. We don't have the pressure of, of like being in a reasonably likely position to qualify for Champions League football. So we can do that by, by settling for sort of mid table, maybe Europa League kind of pushing for get these young players playing regularly and increase their value. And that's why the acquisition of people like Walcott, Wayne Rooney, Walcott, even Sigurdsson. Walcott's the one to for me. They just don't make any sense. Yeah, that's it. We'll, 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 I mean, these are players. Because it's not like, sorry, just to finish, it's not like they, it's not like they stopped completely doing the sensible stuff. They are also still doing the sensible stuff. It's just they're doing all of this other much more expensive, not very sensible stuff at the yeah, same time. Yeah, yeah. What it, it's it's just, I mean, the Walcott thing. Had Walcott been a transfer, a, a summer transfer, I could have potentially understood it. You're, you're sending Lookman out on loan. He's off to you're off to Leipzig, where you know he, he played very well. But 
you're sort of mid-season. You're thinking six months in. I'm, I'm, I. You're you're committing to a player whose best days are definitely behind him. You're spending a huge amount on maybe not on on, on the actual transfer, but certainly in wages, and you're blocking another pathway. And the same is really true of someone like I. I, I think I think Tom Davis is a very good player. Again, raw and and someone that needs to be allowed to make mistakes, which is the the currency for any youth player. You you got to be. They've got to be in a situation where they can come into the, to the team, um, be held to a certain standard, but be allowed to kind of make the sort of the naive mistakes that go with being an inexperienced footballer, because that's really the only way in which they improve. Um, and so Everton's frustrating because there's sort of there's the hint of, of a you know really promising little nucleus somewhere, mm. but then all these sort of these 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 baubles which seem to you know tally with a kind of almost. Um, it, it, it's almost like a lack of patience. It's like you, what you're, you, the upside of a, an Adam Ola Lookman is far higher than anything you're going to extract from Theo Walcott now. Yeah. Definitely, 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 definitely. And, and Walcott's a player where, you know, even Arsene Wenger couldn't really work out what no. his best position was or what to do with him. And I think there's, there's, there's two or three different things going on here at the same time where you've got a transfer strategy that seems to suggest a need to sign marquee signings for a reasonable amount of money sign you know we we can buy players from barcelona we can pay 50 million for gilfie sigurdsson who has been an excellent creative midfielder for other premier which League I, sides. I understood that transfer when it happened I, I, yeah I, I didn't but okay. okay um but at the same time that always needs to be as well allied with a sense of footballing style so what are we seeking to do here yeah exactly and that that's personally why i didn't quite get the Gilfie Sigurdsson thing but uh, it, it also you then look at someone like Walcott you then look at St. Tosin and who both came in that January window and you're sort of thinking okay well it seems like there's there's various different strategies in inverted commas all working simultaneously and not cancelling each other out per se but but having a negative impact on each other Whereas if you stuck to one, the sensible one of which would be a more classic Evertonian, you know, by young, probably mostly British sell on, that makes a lot more sense than any of the other stuff that they're seeking to do. Alex, I also think that sort of, we, we talked initially about kind of Fahad Mashiri's aims and talking about qualifying for Champions Leagues and competing for, for titles. Fans are always more forgiving if they can sense momentum. Like if you're, if you're looking down, if you're, if you're, if you're a season ticket holder at Goodson Park, even if you've got a flawed team, if you, if you have the sense that in two or three years, some of those flaws have melted away and you will have three or four really good players, then that cancels out any frustration you're going to feel about, I don't know, Manchester City able, being able to spend 250 million pounds every summer. You know, yeah, it's, it's a, I, I that's the commodity for a well supporter. That, that, that players are, so players, fans are are more realistic, and I, I speak as a Southampton fan, right? So, <laughs> so you have to be <laughs> healthy dose of realism. Not a Norwich fan, for all of those who commented various things under the, the video. Um, and and yeah, I mean, like we we're going to do well to escape relegation this season after a year or two or three under a manager like Hassan Hootel, if he sticks around, we could be pushing back up to where we were, arguably achieving a little more than we should under Kerman and under Pochettino before him. So I'm then looking at, as a Southampton fan, particularly a club that does have a, an academy that has produced good players recently, 
although not that recently, I want to see those players coming through again. And I, I would, you know, I'm never going to say that I would take pride in in selling a good player to a club for a lot of money because I'm not quite that. That's pretty simple. You know, that's very weirdly modern. sort yeah. of football managery about it. But yeah. at the same time, if I'm unlikely to have European qualification to cheer, if I'm unlikely to have a cup competition to cheer, then my pride will be in in the sense that my club has an identity you seeking to something. do certain things yeah. and is doing those things well. And I think that the overriding impression that I get from from Everton fans that I follow on Twitter, and there, oddly enough, there happen to be quite a few of the sort of good tactics and analytics writers happen to be Everton fans. Um, and, and they're looking down and they're not seeing a plan. It's not even that they're seeing the, the frustration of the development of players who could be really good. It's that they don't know what their team's supposed to be doing half the time. Exactly. Or if they do know what they're supposed to be doing, they don't understand why that's what they're being asked to do. And, and that, that's a tactical point that maybe we'll come on to a little bit later. But Well, I think let's, let's move on to it now. I mean, I was just having a flick through some of the YouTube uh, comments and questions. Um, I'm going to go with the democracy here. There's been an awful lot of questions, but lots of people have been upvoting and uptaking as well. So we'll, re- we'll read a few at the top. But the first one I want to come to is um, just from a comment from Chris, uh, Chris Cullen. Chris Cullen says, as an Everton fan, I just want to know where it's going wrong. On paper, we have a great squad, but since December, whenever I watch us play, we've been horrendous. I mean, these things all obviously tie into um, Marco Silva's uh, period of management. I think I'm right in saying, you know, before the Cardiff game, that Everton have only won three games in the last four. 14, only one of which was really of any significance, which was against Bournemouth. A good one of them result. was an FA Cup game as well. So one of the yeah, the Lincoln City in the FA Cup. The other, I believe, was Huddersfield, who are rock bottom of the Premier which, League. So, with all due respect, just doesn't count at the moment. It yeah, doesn't just, count. Yeah. So, a victory against Bournemouth aside, things really aren't going very well. Alex, we had a quick chat about this beforehand. We've been impressed in the past with Marco Silva, particularly with some of his work at Watford, and of course, at times this season for Everton, it's you know, it seems slightly rosier than it than it is currently well, you had an interesting point about you were con- when you went to go and look at uh, what Marco Silva was actually doing you were confused <laughs> well okay there's there's two things to say firstly let's not forget that they started the season really quite well uh, and they were in sixth for a while um the second thing to say is that helpfully there have been uh two really good articles on stats bombs blog about Everton one of which came out during this sort of bumbling along in sixth and slightly overachieving period, one of which came out a couple of days ago saying what's wrong and how can it be fixed. So these are very helpful articles. And if you go onto Statsbomb's blog, you'll see them. The essential point, I think, is that so Marco Silva made his reputation as a counter-attacking coach, particularly with Olympiacos, where he did really, really well. He actually, I think, he produced direct and at times quite compelling football at uh, Hull and at Watford. But I I don't think there was a consistency to that that really left anybody feeling that this was somebody who could deliver. And and it's also interesting that it's an appointment that was quite politicised at the time. I don't know if you remember, but he was one of those transfer, those managerial appointments who came in and there was a lot of, you know, we don't want these bloody foreigners here backlash. And I think that may have at times caused people to over-egg how well he was doing, almost as a defence against that kind of knee-jerk xenophobia of because, certain Because old they want Neil Warnock. No, no, I, the converse. They're, they're defending Marco Silva 
perhaps more than they ought to in terms of his performance. You, so you get you get a, like a talking head, like a, a Paul Merson, who I think it was, it was him who actually talked about. He, he he played all the kind of doesn't know the league cliches in one go, in one sort of soccer Saturday appearance. Yeah. And Alex is right. A lot of people, they saw the sort of the this slight increments of improvement at Hull and be like, well, you know, proven this guy, this guy's a yeah. genius. This guy is a, a young Mourinho. And uh, yeah. yeah. And, and he's not a young Mourinho. Um, so I think, I think that, that may have colored judgment a little bit around what he's achieved before. But the odd thing, if you look at Everton is that, they are a side who seem to be playing a formation that is something that Marco Silva is uncomfortable coaching, but they've stuck with it consistently. So it's a, a four-two-three-one. It's it's very very direct. In uh, Adrissa Gay and Andre Gomez, they actually have a very reasonable double pivot, and Adrissa Gay is fantastic. He's the only player in the Premier League who has been able to match Kante, um, particularly in defensive stats. Mm. You know. And that's not just recently, that's right back to when he was at Villa and, and you know, overachieved in a team that went down. He's great. He's really, really good. Yeah. And and Gomez, you know, we've talked about Gomez, is, he's a good passer of the ball. According to Statsbomb, he's an above average dribbler. So, you know, there there are aspects to that kind of solid backbone to to progress the ball forwards that work. What you then get is this kind of, complete confusion and you know you're playing Richarlison who was an outstanding kind of effectively an inside forward playing on the left for Watford being deployed as a striker you've got a striker like Cenk Tozen who's sat on the bench but is the kind of you know hold the ball up wait for crosses striker that you would expect Everton to be playing Gilfried Sigurdsson can't be dropped because he's too expensive but he's not really doing very much he plays a lot of through passes but they're not keeping the ball they're not recycling possession it seems to be get it to the front four and hope something happens and unfortunately if you're PSG that's great that works just fine but you're not you're Everton so there doesn't seem to be build up that there, there, there seems to be a disjunct between a kind of a direct counter-attacking style that he wants to play and the players being able to deliver that within the formation that he's coaching them in. Yeah. And that's the, that's the it, key, It's not it? working. And then, and we talked about Wayne Rooney before, who, you know, is it, obviously when he first arrived at Everton, he was playing in a similar position, playing in that 10 role. We've talked on this podcast before about players like Mesut Ozil and generally speaking more broadly about the 10 role, which seems to be less of a thing in, certainly in the modern Premier League, right? And as you, as you mentioned there, uh, Kilfi Sigurdsson cost Everton a lot of money. Hmm. And it's hard to sit those players on the bench, but you're asking them to play in a, in a style that doesn't suit the formation, as you just said. And you know, we know, and yeah, look, these things are very broad. But with with a four two three one, the idea of keeping the ball. I mean, it, I, am I right in saying that the reason that players are set out in that way is when it's in the attacking phase, it's it's easier to recycle the ball and, and hold on to possession. It's exactly right? that. If yes. you're if you're not doing that, and that's not part of the game plan, then why bother doing it at all? If if not just to keep Gilfie Sigurdsson in Completely. the team? Completely. Yeah. I, I, in in a nutshell, that's it. And the issue is that to a degree, Everton's problems could quite straightforwardly be solved. And this is the point that the article makes, and it's the point that I would make as well, that you just bring a player back. You 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 take the, the player that's in the 10 slot, you drop them back into, you know, probably a sort of left side of midfield pushing forward. The Pogba role. The Pogba role. Tom Davis would, would absolutely exactly work in that. that role. And let's not forget that... 
you know, Everton have got Morgan Schneiderling on their books as well, who is a very, very good box-to-box midfielder. You know, he had a torrid time at Man United, but when they bought him from Southampton, he was absolutely top. You know, he he was regularly one of the best kind of workman-like midfielders in the Premier League. And, you know, he could presumably be rehabilitated to something approaching that level, but I would just chuck Davison. And then, you know, you, you've got, Richarlison, who is a tricky, direct player who would excel in a counter-attacking team. You know, the, the Lookman, likewise. And then you stick somebody up front, whether it's Tosin, whether it's Calvert-Lewin, straight away you've got the makings of a team that playing the way that Marco Silva seems to be most comfortable playing would work really, really well. So, the, so do you think he's not allowed to the drop The bizarre question is, well, this is, so, you know, you, there's, there's two issues. One is, You've got a huge outlay on a player who is performing reasonably well, but by no means performing above expectations. He's getting older. He's not playing Champions League football. His They will not recoup their value on him. So in order to maintain anything like his value, they'd either have to sell him now or keep playing him so that he can maintain his fitness and maintain his level. Um, the other issue is that that when you've committed to a signing like Gilfie Sigurdsson, who is not just £50 million of outlay, but is the marquee, hey, I'm here, I'm doing things differently. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, we're now a club who can poach really strong players from the teams that are just a little bit below us in the division. You know, we're flexing our muscles. To suddenly bench the guy because it's not working out does make you look stupid. And it, it makes, it makes the ownership structure and the scouting structure look stupid as well. So I think Silver is probably really caught in a quandary here because, you know, what, what does he look to do? Here's a different question then, right? Because Sigurdsson was there at the beginning of the season. Sigurdsson's there now. As yeah. you mentioned already, at the beginning of the season, Everton were playing very well, overachieving, you put it potentially. Currently, Everton are playing very, very poorly. So what's changed? I mean, like Sig- Sigurdsson's been there the whole way through. So in, on the one hand, that's an interesting angle. They're not but- playing poorly. What they're not, they're not really playing to much of a plan. You know, they, they still have good players, in Idrissa Gay, they have a player whose defensive abilities can compensate a lot for what else is happening. Um, but Andre Silva appears to think that they're playing... Andre Silva, sorry. Um, Marco Silva... I'm doing a Seb. Uh, Marco Silva appears Marcel to think... Janssen. ...that they are playing uh, to the same game plan that they were at the beginning of the season. His justification for continuing playing in that way is that Anseb is opening a nicotine gun. Just do it. If you're going to do it, just do it. Come on, Alex and I aren't allowed to smoke during I, I the podcast. Have a, I, I, did, I, did I have wish. A, I did have a question before we moved on. Alex, we, we talked about... Um, I was just I was just put, pushing him in a tactics corner. But I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm keeping I'm, him in the corner. I'm keeping him in the corner. It's okay. So one of my theories about the 4-2-3-1 is the importance of the one. And I, do you think that, um, see, I, in, in someone like Dominic Cavett, so learn about the importance of the ones, so. <laughs> <laughs> the deeper meaning to our podcast. Mm. So I, Cavett Lewin, I see is a, a nice player, a decent Premier League footballer. I'm not sure he's quite a forward. I think he's, he's, if, if he was playing in the nineties, he'd be one of a two, but it, I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Cenk Tosin, uh, a bit more rugged. Uh, I don't know. I mean, he he had a he had a, a great run in the Champions League before he came, and he looked like an entirely different player when he was in Turkey. I, I mean, I, I I think one of the, the sort of the the roots of Everton's malaise is the inability to to 
well, the reluctance, the whatever, the failure to replace Lukaku, because without a specialist forward, a specialist forward of the right mm. ability, then we can argue about Sigerson, but a, a playmaker, a wide forward, the proper pivot doesn't exist. Sure. Which, I mean, I, there's, but there's, there's, would, would Lukaku work really, really well in a super counter-attacking 4-3-3 that's more dangerous without the ball than with it? Maybe, maybe not. If I mean, he played, if he played one of those wide positions, not, not as a, not as a yeah. nine, probably so, I'd say. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is, uh, uh, Paul Riley, um, football fact man on Twitter did a, a piece on Sandro Ramirez yeah. when he was signed from Malaga and, he was uh, massively exceeding his XG. I mean, it was something absurd. Like it was entirely likely that he would have scored two goals from his shots as he did the 14 or something he'd got. But he is a good uh, link player. Uh, He's clearly quite a good finisher because he scored a lot of goals in La Liga. But, you know, again, if you're looking for a player who can maybe drop off and allow a dynamic attacker like Richarlison to cut inside from the left with Lucas Dean, who's a very good overlapping fullback from, from left back coming in. Maybe actually what you need is not an out and out striker. What you need is somebody who can know when to drop off and link play and when to get into the box to be on the end of crosses and, and Everton, you know, the most like that kind of profile of player that Everton have is currently on loan at Real Sociedad. So that makes it tricky too. I'm, I'm going to move us along. Uh, okay, I've got quite a lot of questions to get to. Okay. Um, the first one though relates to uh, the sort of tactical side of things we're discussing now. A junk asks us, uh, why can't they defend set pieces? I know this is something you were going to bring up anyway, Alex. So would you like to talk about that now? Because it's it's quite a funny one, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's an odd one. So I, I, I've had a look back at uh, chances that they've conceded from set pieces from about the last three or four games uh, using Y Scout. And there seems to be quite a consistent theme. It is difficult to tell what's going on. And I'm by no means a professional set piece analyst. And that is a specific area that, that, you know, requires a lot of time and attention. However, two things really obviously leap out. The first is that they're rigidly sticking to a zonal marking. And what that often leaves is a, a triangle of Everton players towards the front post um, with two back and, and one up. And that's quite a lot of players to put in that area. And what you very often see is that teams, even if they're not attacking that, even if they are attacking that area to start with, very quickly adapt and start uh, loading up the back post instead. The other thing is that probably because of this zonal marking, um, Jordan Pickford seems very reticent to come forwards and claim the ball. Now, Pickford is a generally a very aggressive goalkeeper. He's a very aggressive goalkeeper when the ball is on the ground. And I think that's all to the good. He's an excellent distributor of the ball as well. At corners and, and well, more corners than free kicks, but, but both, he seems to be instructed to stay back quite a lot. And when he is coming to claim the ball, he's almost always having to go over one of his own defenders to get to it. That to me, again, seems to suggest that the players are being told, you know, you will stay in this zone here. And it's a very, very easy thing for a team to then work out how to play against. Well, on the Watford podcast, we were talking about Marco Silva then. You told us uh, an amazing stat about Marco Silva and set pieces. Which I can't claim any credit for. I saw it on Twitter. No, no, sure. But would you repeat that? Uh, Basically, I think the, the, the worst three teams for set piece goals conceded in Premier League history have been Marco Silva's 
Everton, Hull, and Watford. Yeah, I mean that's In quite what telling, order, I don't know, um, but yes. So there's a problem and, there. And it's interesting because again, if you look at what uh, at Everton's defensive statistics, they are generally speaking, league average or slightly better in most instances, except in terms of the chances that they concede from set pieces, where they are significantly worse. Um, This is clearly just an area he can't do. And I remember, I think Arsenal, maybe four, five, six years ago, when they brought in, I'm looking at you, Steve Bold, Bold was, was brought in to address exactly the same sort of issue at Arsenal. I think people... People look at set pieces perhaps and think, well, you know, you just sort of, you pick up a guy and and, and the big guy picks up the other big guy and there you don't, you know, but it, it's really, really complicated. I was always picking are, up the big guy. Sure. Hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I think, I think teams are, uh, other teams have switched on. I mean, it's one of the areas where there are serious degrees that you can exploit the average level of performance to to gain a competitive advantage. You know, look at someone like Michelin over in the, the Danish Super League. So if you're not doing, if you're not at least keeping up, it's very, very easy to fall drastically behind and suddenly become a league outlier for conceding ridiculous goals. Okay, well, just to wrap up on the tactics front then, um, what are you expecting from them? I mean, do, do Marco Silva doesn't appear to want to be... You know, flexible is a word we've used a lot uh, in association with Maurizio Sarri or is being used a lot at the moment with, with managers like Sarri. Marco Silva, perhaps understandably, if his system was working better at the beginning of the season than it is now, isn't keen to change too much. What are you expecting from Everton for the remainder of the season in that case? I mean, I suspect... Because he's, the, he's I think, in the odds of the next Premier League manager to lose their job or leave their position, at least. He's... That, well, he was third in the list before Ranieri went, so I imagine he's second. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really pretend to foresee what clubs will or won't do. I, I think the likelihood is that he will stick to that system, that they'll continue to bumble along, probably drop a little bit further. Um, they need to arrest the recent defensive frailties, and they need to start creating better opportunities. And it was noticeable against Watford, even though they lost that game. They did go with a proper striker up front. Richarlison was playing wide again. Um, there are changes so being made. There are even some changes subtle. being made, but they're they're personnel changes rather than fully systematic changes. I mean, that this is a club that really, in some, I think going off both what Seb and I have said before, seems to have an idea of what it wants to be, but no real clear idea of how to get there. And and I think that's manifest on the pitch as much as it is everywhere else. Okay. Seb, let's talk about the stadium before we move on to some yeah. questions from, from the users. Uh, in the small bit of research I did yesterday, uh, which was very small, as you can probably tell, <laughs> um, I note that uh, at the earliest, uh, it's likely that work wouldn't, wouldn't begin on any potential stadium until 2020. Yeah. Um, and also that I think even just, um, uh, what was the term they used? Checking the site initially, uh, preparing the site for building what was going to cost somewhere in the region of £100 million. So it's not a cheap thing to do, is it? No, well, the the, the cost is sort of has jumped up by £200 million. Um, originally the site at Bramley Moor Docks was supposed to um, a lovely part of the, Liverpool by the way if they, if they as and when they do build the stadium that'll be one of the most picturesque grounds in the country it's, um, for people who haven't seen it go and uh, go and go and look on Google Maps it'll be um, absolutely spectacular like a, a super Fulham 
mm-hmm. basically, with with more or less gourmet burgers. Well, probably more because uh, it's also um, I think two thirds of the cost of the stadium is going to be um, uh, met by Liverpool Council, um, and it's going to hopefully Bramley Moor Docks. I think had pretty much sat vacant since the very late 80s. It had, uh, I think there were a couple of music festivals or something that, that had been there, but little else. Um, with the new stadium will come a whole sort of um, rejuvenation project. And I know that's a that's a phrase tossed around by clubs whenever they do this and more often than not, rejuvenation. Legacy. Yeah, exactly. It's very 2012, isn't it? And, and sort of more often than not, rejuvenation is limited to opening a Volvo dealership and a, and a harvester. Um, in this instance, that's... <laughs> hey, listen, I love a harvester. Yeah, well, we all do. Come on, like, I, listen. Let's, you know, I want more from a rejuvenation than a harvester. Let's be kind to the harvester <laughs> okay. chain. Yeah, we are done... still looking for a sponsor as well. So if harvester, that's true, <laughs> harvester, I'd be very happy to even just accept a free meal while I come to Harlow. So at the moment, one of the reasons for the delay, though, is that they um, Everton has decided to do a kind of a, a public consultation, which uh, it's going to last a year. They've just um, well, and a public consultation just to talk to the public about whether they're happy with the project or not. Well, the aspects of the project. So there are there are different parts of it. One of the one of the most contentious issues is the uh, capacity. So at the moment, Goodison uh, Park is houses just over thirty nine thousand. Um, I think there were quite a few Everton fans who, looking at some of some of the the newer stadiums being built in the country, were hoping for something around the sort of 60, 65, 70 mark. Um, looks like it's going to be more likely between about 50 and 55,000, um, which has annoyed some people. They think, well, we're making this this huge financial commitment and we're, we're, we're moving from a ground which is still one of the best in the countries. If anyone hasn't been, go to Goodison because it's, it's great. It's sort of rammed up against its local community. It's a great place to watch football. One of the issues, though, is that um, whilst Goodison is frequently sold out, its season ticket waiting list is only, I think, 10,000 in 2000. And beginning of last season, according to a recent AGM, I think there were 2,000 season tickets not renewed at the end of last season which maybe you can link abstractly to Allardyce and you know Steve Walsh and what have you but the idea is that sort of um, the club don't yet they're not yet convinced about the ability to sell out a 70,000 uh, stadium um, so that that's part of the consultation I think the the find the the, um, the next set of findings which will relate to things like architectural design a few things have started leaking out which are I, I don't know whether to take them at face value or not but there, there are a few designs knocking out there on in internet land um, but sort of as of the summer the, the sort of the, the, the plans will be far more firm but it, I think it's I, I think it's very important because I I think in a sort of in a social sense Liverpool's a wonderful city I mean architecturally it's it's absolutely beautiful it's two football clubs though are still rooted in their traditional homes I mean even Anfield despite its um its renovation and its I think you probably see that new main stand from the moon. I would have thought it's so big. Um, they are, they're in areas of the town where um, sort of expansion is limited um, and which are not necessarily poor areas of the town, but sort of areas of town which are not really reflective of modern Liverpool. The Liverpool you see when you get, you, you go out of the station and, and you, you see the big museum and, you know, the sort of the architectural flourishes. Isn't that kind of part of the charm though? In my opinion, yes. But in modern football's opinion, probably no. I was going to say that's probably one of the areas where you'd, you'd likely have a disjunct between what the club itself wants to happen and, and 
certainly what the council would want because i know and, like, and what when, actual fans whenever want. i go down to look you know walking past selhurst park for example i love how but close it is thing, to the Jones. house yeah, it's, it's like it's what Brentford we, as well is exactly the same walk at some park now it's like, got real charm there isn't a better ground to visit it is it's wonderful and if i had my way every ground in the country would look like that and it would there would be nothing which looked like the emirates or respectfully alex st mary's because it, it's 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 kind of nowhere it's it's a sort of well talk me through it though right because okay. we, we, 10 15 years ago yeah. the advent of a new stadium was very important it made a big difference to the bottom end of clubs uh, ability to sort of increase their uh, financial revenues right yeah we know today that it doesn't have anywhere near the same impact on no. the amount of money that they make. Partly, well, almost totally because of uh, broadcasting income, the Premier League deals have gone through the fucking roof yeah. and therefore uh, over, over 50, 60 stadiums now and it yeah. really wouldn't matter that much, basically. Exactly, right. Yeah. And with the smaller clubs in the league, uh, it is... <laughs> it is you know it's up in like 90% plus the amount of money that's coming in is coming from yeah. broadcasting income right with the really big clubs where they're in the battleground now is with commercial income so we see that we released a video on Manchester United last week um, we know uh, Manchester City is sort of doing everything they can to try and catch up with United the same applies to Chelsea and Arsenal and, and, and Spurs and so the, uh, why are they why are they doing it there's a, a- very interesting book by Dan Fields and it's called The European Game and it talks about how oh, various great clubs yeah. uh, conduct themselves off the pitch with a view to an overall strategy um, and there's a chapter on PSG in there and PSG's PSG were a club that had a really bad hooligan problem. Um, ultras groups that were, were heavily invested in violence and, and would travel all the way down to Marseille to stab people and all the rest of it. And so Marseille can't hold their own in that little Yeah, for little sure. Um, but, but very much part of the regeneration of the stadium and the, uh, the attempts to... Um, I don't want to say this without sounding kind of arsy about it, but basically to get a better class of fan there, and this was very much what PSG was intending, was in order that it would become a kind of a cultural event rather than a purely sporting one. That then has knock-on effects in terms of the commercial viability. It's this is it, right? I mean, it means, it means you're, you're making it welcoming a, to to the corporate class of people, basically. Yeah, yeah. which is yeah. it's like you're, very you're, unfortunate. You're transitioning your audience from you know C's and B's up to. A1s and A2s and so on in, in advertising parlance. And I'm sure that the stadium will be lovely. And as you said, when it's finished, it, it might be one of the most picturesque in, in the league. And that's very nice. And, I, and I'm, I'm sure that Everton fans will enjoy attending it. However, there's something that irks me about sacrificing um, yeah, Joe, you know, like, decades but, of history for, for the hopes that you might be able to invite... Uh, you know, Joe, CEOs but, uh, of, of local corporations to come down and, and eat in your cheese bar, Tottenham yeah, Hospital. But, uh, anyone, anyone who who grew up at a certain time feels exactly the same way. But what we've what we've come to realise is that you can write as many articles and we can we can record as many podcasts talking about the evils of modern football, but it doesn't matter. It's happened. Um, and like I said, I I mean, you know, before I was allowed, to, I'm a Spurs fan, but before I was allowed to go to London, um, when I was still young, I used to go to the Manor Ground in Oxford. Absolute dump of a place. Um, look it up if you're too young to remember it. But I loved it. Mm. It was just really a collection of sheds. It was in its community. You, you actually went to watch football where people lived. You know, imagine that now. Um, and... I would do anything to go back to that, but it's just not going to happen. Football, you know, the the the, the horse is bolted. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah, there'll be something when, when, when I, when I, when I go to, to Goodison Park for the last time and, you know, there, there are people there. I've got, um, know a couple of guys who sell, um, fanzies out there, Cy and Bawley. Um, Bawley looks like a, a professional wrestler, so you can't miss him. He's a huge hulking guy. Um, these are, these are people that kind of, they're part of the experience of going there because it's sort of, this is a place. This is a community. This is not just a precinct full of, um, Nando's and GBKs and cafeneros and whatever else, cheese rooms at Spurs. You know, it, it's, it's really disheartening. And also, um, this unspoken secret that it's all really being done transparently to make sure that a different kind of person can come to football. When you consider that the kind of person they're trying to lock out of football is the very person who has allowed it to exist up to this point, that is a huge moral quandary, which football does doesn't take nearly seriously enough. And it's enough. also, I mean, you can see this manifest in the fact that, that clubs are so desperate to present themselves through their advertising yeah. material as a community, a special place. As part of a day know. out, Alex, isn't no, it? It's not it, like it's, a going to a game. Well, no, no, say, what, I, what I mean is they're seeking to, the very thing that is being forced away from and expunged from modern football is is the basis of the advertising that modern football sells itself oh, I see. with. Yeah, We're yeah, part of the community. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of tragic irony. We represent values which we don't care about. Yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. Effectively. It's horrible. I always think of the, uh, the, the, the Stuart Lee as a stand-up comedian from the, from the UK, for anyone who doesn't know, and has a great bit about the uh, the values of the car phone warehouse, which is <laughs> it's very funny. If you're bored, do go on YouTube and look up That's Stuart Lee. That's a Lee's. rabbit hole because you just go Stuart Lee's video to Stuart Lee video once you're there. I tell you what, there's a great... Oh, never mind. Before you launch yourself into that same rabbit hole. Well, I'd love to know what Everton fans think about what we've just been talking about, the idea of moving to a new stadium. Perhaps, you know, leave some comments below the video if if, if you are such a person um, and have a view on that. Um, let's go to some user questions now. We asked before the podcast if anyone has anything to ask at all about Everton. So some of these are going to uh, uh, veer wildly through different sorts of topics. The first one, and I must indicate the most upvoted by other viewers, 218 people want us to ask this question. 219, if you include the person who asked it. Uh, does Chelsea's transfer ban open a window for a club like Everton to drag themselves into the top six? I see both of you. Saw, well, Alex, you're shaking your head inside. Seb, you're shaking your actual head. First of all, um, let's wait uh, until Chelsea have appealed the transfer ban. I suspect it will become one year rather than two. That seems to be how it works. That <laughs> seems to be how it works for a particular you a type of club. And if then you're you a big say, club, hold on, and then you get half of it. Well, if you're a big club and uh, you hold sway with UEFA, that tends to happen. And you probably won't get a ruling until after this. Exactly. So it's going to be suspended. out to happen will start. So the, the other thing I say is, and this is more of a Chelsea thing than an Everton one, don't be surprised if that transfer ban does Chelsea a lot of good. Yeah. Um, because Chelsea's problem is not, I mean, it is a little bit their, their inability to sign the right players, but they've got huge infrastructural failings, which will have to be cured as a result of this. Instead of looking at the market to pay over cracks in the squad or communication um, problems, even. Well, absolutely. So maybe, uh, maybe as a result of this, someone will say, well, actually, maybe we should have a director of football. Right. You know, maybe we should use some of our academy talent. And there is an awful lot in there to mind. So maybe they should get a bouncer to drag players off the pitch. You know, maybe like after the, Sunday, maybe, maybe. You just or carry them. Yeah, or just, yeah. Sign a new squad or a new manager or basically anything. Uh, okay. Uh, so, so, no, basically, no, like, no. I, 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 that's, 
that's too tenuous for me. No. I mean, also, I would have thought the first aim for Everton will be uh, to get to number seven. The, the, the first aim for Everton is to correct the down cycle. Yeah. It's not to achieve anything in the league position. It is to feel like an upwardly mobile football team again. But we can all understand why uh, discussions of the top six and Everton go hand in hand because for so long, for so long, traditionally, case. that was them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And, and there's, you know, it's not a stupid question to ask because it's entirely possible that it will open the door to somebody. Yeah. And currently that somebody's probably Watford. Oof, oof. Stinging. But but yeah, I mean it's you know Wolves maybe. Like yeah. Wolves uh It's not know. it's not Everton though, not at the moment. Danny Jerome. Why was Lukaku so much better for Everton than Manchester United? I feel like Alex, you could probably take ten minutes to answer that, but take thirty seconds. Um No, I, I'm not sure I can. Um I, I think I think it's it's difficult to to compare players for different teams when they're working under such different systems 20 seconds so this okay the system was better at Everton there you go that's all I want from you come on uh, who's I'm next? not allowed to add on to that presumably because we've gone on to the 30 seconds you know what I was so focused on um, getting Alex to speed up that I didn't prepare anything for the follow up so uh, okay. there you go oh well Adam you asked about Adam Ola-Lukman we talked about him already why isn't Adam Ola-Lukman a regular starter for Everton I don't know Unless I don't know it's an error. It's a, you know, I um right at the beginning of the season, I made a rather offhand remark about, you know, when uh, when Leipzig were trying to sign him, I said, well, if you're not going to play him, there should be some kind of. I, I meant it jokingly, but there should be some bylaw which means that come on, just let him go and play somewhere. Um, and that did not go down that well with Everton fans. So, but no, he's a. I, I have no idea. No idea. Okay. Um, what do you think the missing piece is that will take Everton to the next level? I suppose we could interpret that however we like. Is it managerial? Is it player-wise? I mean, you mentioned... It's a strategy. It's a strategy. Yeah. I, like, I, like, I, like, I mean, on a, on a superficial level, some permanence in defence. Like, you know, at the moment you're constructing a team out of, uh, out of a player that has no European football experience, really, Yerry Mina, a lone player, and Michael Keane, who is still questionable for this level, um, and a forward. You need a forward. You need a proper forward. Uh, um, Michael Keane, I mean... Could be a good player, I, but... I, I, but yeah. I, I would have serious reservations about signing defenders from Burnley if you're not going to play exactly, that. exactly how Sean Dyche plays them. Because Tarkovsky, me, they look exactly as Michael Keane does now if they move to Everton at the same time, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think, I think there's a lot to be said, again, for analysing players within the systems that they play. And, and yes, you can look Lukaku. extremely good. There's, I'm not saying that... that Keane isn't a good player, but you know he's good at certain stuff. And if you try and then get him to do something else, it's not necessarily going to work. They they need to work out how they want to play on the pitch. They then need to to work out how to conduct their business in the transfer market in order to effectively support that. You know, I'd also like actually. Sorry, as for no. next season, I mean, we we've talked a little bit about players like Tom Davis and Lookman. I'd like to see them give Kieran Dowell a bit of an opportunity. Um, so he, he's he's on loan at Sheffield United at the moment, and Chris Wilder uh, believes he's a number ten full time. Um, wants to play him behind a forward. Um, he hasn't played that often, but he he played extremely well against West Brom over the weekend. Um, I I think. Um, just, just give these guys an opportunity because actually, if you do, I think Everton will find out they're better than what they're importing. You know, it just, you have the opportunity to save money. Also, I think getting that crowd behind this team is very, very important again because that, there's a disconnect there, clearly. Yeah. Um, and the quickest way to do that is to put players in front of fans who not necessarily they relate to, but they have an interest in. 
mm-hmm. in more than just the kind of well he's he's wearing my the, the right color shirt sort I, of interest i think as well particularly again going off what i infer from twitter everton plans are crying out for the sense that the team has a style that they're working toward yeah. um and, okay, and well, there isn't that. I'm going to expand the question slightly that was just our Soccer Essential 13 asks, uh, well, uh, they ask uh, what coach would work for the club. I mean, given, let's just assume, for example, that Marco Silva does lose his job at some point, right, which probably isn't that unlikely. Um, given the players that they have at their disposal, uh, can you think of a coach that might enjoy that uh, or enjoy taking that job on because there's lots of as we've just discussed for the last hour there's lots of uh, positive things to take there lots of very impressive young players who could be integrated into the team um, do either of you have anyone in mind? If, if, it, if the question was how do they cure some of their problems I would say Rafael Benitez but I don't see him as a fit at Goodson Park because I don't think he uh, traditionally he's a fit for 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 the style those fans want to see. Well, also, I mean, would he go to Everton? I don't know. I um, mean, given the Liverpool connection, would that would they want him? No, no, no of course not. But it's not, it's just it's it's one of those things, though, Joe, isn't it? It's kind of like football clubs will always look past that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, no, Benitez probably wouldn't go there. But at the same time, no, George Graham wasn't going to go to Tottenham. Yeah. I mean, it's just like I don't think it works in quite the same way that it does for players. Yeah. Whether there's a sort of an animus towards him as there was at Chelsea, probably, but. Literally speaking, you need someone in that mould at the moment to... The first step for Everton is to become harder to beat. Mm -hmm. And in the Premier League, who is doing the most with a team that should be harder to beat, which should be easier to beat? Newcastle, I'd say. Sean Dyche? Style. Mm -hmm. Again, like it's too close to the Allardyce thing. Also, I think Dyche is a more advanced manager than than Allardyce, but at the same time, that's not his association. He's going to come in and the initial reaction to anything like that is going to be to say, no, this is Allardyce Mark II. So, yeah. Heiko Herlick. Okay. (laughs) Nice. Really nice on brand. Which Bundesliga club is he at again? Uh, He was at Leverkusen. Where's he gone? Um, He's just floating about in the ether Uh. currently after Peter Bosch has gone there. The reason I say that is twofold. He he mostly works in a 4-2-3-1 and he's got a very good reputation for developing young players as you can see by you know the the way that people like Leon Bailey and Julian Brandt came on and I think we'll all agree season. he's got one of the best names in football sure does yeah uh, he was also ridiculously handsome when he was younger and he looks cool now he looks very distinguished yeah mm. okay um Aiden Boydlin apologies if I've almost certainly said your name incorrectly was Tim Cahill the best Australian player to play in the Premier League pre-injury Harry Kuehl pre-injury Harry Kuehl was I mean, a really wonderful footballer. Yeah, yeah, for me. Uh, over a long period head, of time, did he head in goals like Tim Cahill? He though? didn't, but he, he was he as fun as Tim Cahill. His, if you can find no. his outside of the left, in off the bottom of the bar goal, that will answer your question. It depends what you want from saying somebody's the best. I want flair, Alex. Okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> most effective is Cahill. I, I most effective is Cahill. Schwarzer. Uh, yeah, I mean, longevity, absolutely. I, I mean, I Kuehl, Kuehl I, was more fun to watch. I thought, I thought Kuehl, Kuehl could have gone higher in the game had he been luckier. I yeah. think. Um, I think he was more talented than. He's Kuehl. been sacked by Crawley as well. Sure has. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk amongst yourselves. I'm still looking for another question. Okay. Do, do you, just uh, having a look at other. Do you like the color blue? No, not really. No, not no. really. 
<laughs> this, yeah. I mean, there was a question in there about uh, 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 the eighty-five team and the effect of the Heisel ban on them. Oh yeah, you want to talk about? I that? can answer that because yeah, I find it interesting. It's more. It's Let really more it my thing. Yeah. Um, if you find the the person that uh, that asked that, so that you can get their name checked. Mm-hmm. Uh, ooh, this is terrible podcasting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a couple of things to cut from this one. I'd say so. Well, I mean, they'll be lucky if I cut it. We've had a long day. Thierry Henry's free, isn't he? I forgot <laughs> from that. I'm just looking. I mean, you know. I could start talking about it, Joe. And there are then- some good managers. Some Well, there are some reasonable managers that are out of work currently. It was Andrew Campbell. Uh, the impact of the European ban that caused Everton to lose all their best players in the 80s and what could have been. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I don't have a definitive answer. I just It's it's the kind of the part of football that I'm, I'm more interested in, the history of it. Um, I think, because the, the thing to remember is that when, when Everton won the league uh, in 1985, they, they did so by 13 points, um, which is, you know, and also won the, um, the Cup Winners' Cup, uh, which is um, incredibly impressive. And unfortunately, obviously, sort of, okay, so um, high school disaster is 85 and um, English clubs are banned uh, from that point onwards. Um and obviously, the, the, the kind of the, the breakup of that team, um, including how Kendall going off to Spain, um, can be charted against those players wanting to play European football. Um, that's one aspect of it. What could Everton have achieved if that team had stayed together? The other is we're talking about a period of time where um, exposure of English football isn't what it is now like you don't have a bt sport you don't have a sky sports you don't have well we don't really have 11 i guess anymore but like you don't have every league at the tip of your fingertips uh, at your fingertips and so what are everton as a club if realistically they go far in the european cup in the years afterwards what if that team stays together and because that's a that, that that's a is it the howard kendall era exactly that so you, you've got this sort of cluster I think of players we have a video about that on we, the, we on do the we, we, well, we have a we have a video about his career um i mean that's sort of the whole lead up to that but you know some of the players in that team um graham sharp is someone who he, he's a good example of someone that you think he's almost forgotten about like if you think about the players that are referenced from that era, they are nearly always Liverpool players of, that have achieved things in, in, in Europe. Now, if you put, um, I'm not suggesting that Pat van der Howe would have become a, a legend, um, but, you know, Gary Stevens, Trevor Steven, um, Andy Gray was playing forward there as well. You know, this, this was a good team. Now, Everton's standing as a club, do they, as a result of going to European competition and knocking over some of the continent's elite, do they become, become the kind of side in the decades after who have all these commercial avenues that are mineable through um, foreign fan bases or do they have that kind of draw probably not but it, it's a legitimate question I mean I know it's historically it's a very awkward topic to to um, to to drag up because it's high school people lost their lives and it involves Liverpool it's it's difficult but there is a legitimate grievance about the timing of it for, for Everton fans of course I understand that um, but it, it is it's one of the great what ifs I mean what are you know we talked earlier about that sort of that 10,000 supporter waiting list for season tickets so Goodison what is the effect on that because these things as we know now like you know Liverpool maybe they win the, the Premier League this year but Liverpool being able to sustain um their sort of their global appeal yeah. okay so they won the European Cup in 05 sure 
but with fairly minimal success. So if you put Everton in a situation where they then go on to dominate the end of the 80s, between 85 and 90, what happens next? It's yeah. fascinating. Could be huge. Yeah, absolutely. I once interviewed Pat Van Den Hale. Lunatic. He was at Spurs as well, yeah. I spent more money calling South Africa on my <laughs> mobile phone than I did getting paid for it. And then the next week I interviewed David Icke. <laughs> so, <laughs> I remember this. I remember you, uh, yeah, we, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Pat Van Der was very interesting to talk to. I'm he, sure it was, he was like, lunatic frantic. as a player. I don't know what he's like so as a person. He was but... quite frantic. I mean, I think he's had a very difficult life. Mm-hmm. Um, sad times for him. But uh, yeah, Missouri was Neville very interesting. South, this is, a, this is a good, good football team. That um, It's a great shame. Well, that was a good, that was a good question to answer. Yeah. Um, I think we will bring it to an end there. Do we feel like we've satisfied? I, I don't know if I feel like I've satisfied what Everton fans want to hear. I'm still mourning my Marcel Janssen brands clusterfuck. I mean, we've done the stadium. Well, before the weekend. Yeah, I mean, it has been. I feel a bit drained, and I haven't done anything. I've just sat here watching Joe do stuff and it's get because angry. Because I required both of your energies to uh, supplement mine I as like I try to fix we all the audio problems we're more, having. A bit sharper. I feel it blunted us. Technical vampire. Yeah. 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 So sorry if it's been a shit episode for those reasons. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you're an fan, suck it up. There was no strategy, there was no planning, and we didn't really we execute. Did. We, like, you know what? Like, it's I was, the Everton of podcasts. Like, I, I came here this morning, like, I was proud of the research I'd done. I'd looked into brands as... Yeah. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. I've like, gone through back, back through his entire I think you've done history. a fine job. I'm just thinking, we've talked about Marco Silva. We've got no idea whether he's going to lose his job or not, so there's nothing we can do no there. So we've talked about the stadium. We got a little bit caught up in whether modern football's bad. Obviously, it is. No need to even talk about it. Uh, we've talked about the ownership. Uh, we've answered some questions. I feel, yeah, maybe uh, the problem with this podcast is it lacks the it lacks I, the sort of cutting edge that Everton teams... I, I, Everton, I want Everton, Everton, Everton to I want Everton to... I, I, I feel like the game is better for a strong Everton. Mm. I feel like it's kind of like, you know, you know, sort of a, a accountability in a political sense. I feel like we cannot have enough teams in the league who are snapping at the heels and taking advantage of the inefficiencies of the big beasts. Like you need another Spurs, you need another Wolves or Watford. And Everton, Everton have been there for so long that it feels weird not having them there. Mm. Like it's so, it's a... Are they the independent group? <sighs> Don't don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Is this don't do that? Broken modern football. Don't do that. I'm not answering that. Kill okay. it. Turn, turn it off. Turn everything off. Let's <laughs> mm. okay. not get Joe started. Uh, no, 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 no. Well, listen. That's the end of the of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I imagine at some point in the future we were discussing the idea of making a video about the set pieces thing. Maybe we won't. Maybe we might do something about Everton before the end of the year. So uh, do look out for that. Uh, Seb, you'll be back next week, I believe. Sure will. Uh, this should be released at the normal time again next week, which which will be Tuesday morning. We're not certain which team we're going to talk about yet. So if you've got any suggestions, do let us know and uh, we'll be back then. So uh, thanks very much. Au revoir.